Good evening, family. It's good to be together. It's good to see your faces. We are honored to have visitors, and God bless you. You are a blessing to us. We hope to be a blessing to you. As most of you know, I have a little personal tradition of giving on Sunday evenings uh, what I call an interactive sermon, where I choose a topic and ask three questions, and I um, try to get three answers per question for this. And uh, a little background for tonight's story. Uh, no, I, I'm not confused about what time of year it is, and I'm not trying to do Christmas in July. But just to let you know, I was going through a binder at home of Bible classes, and several years ago, I wrote a curriculum for a one-year Bible study um, with four quarters, divided into four quarters. And the fourth quarter was Christ and his church. And it basically has been collecting dust for several years. So I said, why not use it since you went to the trouble of writing it and blow the dust off of it and bring it to church. So considering the importance to Christians of Christ and his church, I thought that a, a fitting uh, quarter to start with. And so, of course, if we're going to talk about Christ and his church, and we're going to try to be somewhat comprehensive about that, we would start with Christ and his church, the Lord's birth, the birth of Jesus. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And so what I hope to do in my next dozen or so opportunities to speak to you is to go through the rest of this outline talking about Christ and his church. Not the next consecutive Sunday evenings, but as I have opportunity, that's good Lord willing in the creek don't rise, as the saying goes, what I hope to do. So let's take up Jesus' birth, his story, in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and I'm going to read from the NIV. Matthew writes, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. That can also be uh, translated betrothed. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not, not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now in the Bible, names mean a lot. The meaning of the name Jesus is, the Lord saves. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's from Isaiah 7. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her 
until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, or when it arose, it can be translated that way, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ, that is the Messiah, was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And that's from Micah chapter 5. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. What a spectacular event. The star was traveling, and then it stopped. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh, three types of gifts. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So here we have the, the story of the birth of Jesus, what is traditionally known as the Christmas story. So I want to ask you three questions and hope to get three responses per question tonight. And these are thought questions, something to consider throughout the week, actually. And the first one is what I consider a no-brainer. I like to start off with the easy ones, the no-brainers. And that is, how was Jesus' birth different from other births? And hopefully we all agree it's different, extremely different, than all other births. He was born of the Spirit. What does that mean? Aren't you born of the Spirit, my brother? No, I'm born of substance. I guess from my parents. Okay. Um, okay, so his origin was spiritual, as you're saying. Is that a proper way to understand you? I think so. Okay. Anyone else? Ah, excellent. He was prophesied. That's excellent. I'm going to give specific examples, unless you had one you wanted to give. Okay. A third. He is born of the Spirit. He is prophesied. Anything else? He is born of a virgin. And that ties in with being born of the Spirit, is it not? That he's born of a virgin. Excellent. Okay. One, one, one important thing is 
Okay, so for them to, to see the star rise, the, the implication is the wise men were looking for the star. They were looking for a sign of the birth of the Messiah. Were they not? It's a good point. There is a lot to this story. We're not going to cover all that tonight, but I do want to hear your thoughts on this. So let me offer you my thoughts, and they are repeat somewhat of what's been offered. Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord and Christ and God. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, where it says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I'm going to just go off on a little tangent here, God with us. Does that mean God on our side or God among us? Among. Good point. Who else said that? God bless you, brother. Among. God among. God is among us. God's not on our side. We need to be on God's side. That's another sermon for another day. But we need to be on God's side. So God is among us. So Jesus is the Son of God. He is the I Am. Second way, Jesus' birth was prophesied, as was said. And I want to... Well, let's look at verse 20, since we're here, of chapter 1, where it reads, But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, in, seven, in chapter 7 of Isaiah. I also want to go back all the way to Genesis. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Very first book of the Bible, the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve have sinned, and God is demanding an account from them, he says to the serpent who deceived the woman, in Genesis Chapter 3, verse 15. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and hers. He, that is, the seed of the woman, who is Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So all the way back, to the very first of humankind, Jesus' birth is prophesied. His life is prophesied. And I'll say this as an aside. When it says that he will crush or strike your head, that's a killing blow. When it says you, that is the, the serpent, the devil, will strike his heel, that's a hurting blow. So the devil is going to hurt Jesus. Jesus is going to crush and totally defeat the devil, a killing blow. I'll say that as an aside. All the way back then, God had it in his mind, his plan to do this. What a marvelous thing. All the way back then, in the beginning, and before the beginning. 
A third way, so we've seen Jesus as the Son of God. His birth was prophesied. As was said, it was a virgin birth. Again, Matthew 1 and verse 18. I'll turn back to that. Where it says, His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with the child with child through the Holy Spirit. So that's three marvelous ways that Jesus' birth is different than other births. Now let's move on to our second question of the evening. And that is, why would the wise men give gifts to Jesus since he's no older than a toddler at most? He's one to two years old. Scott. Ah, oh, that was a very prepared answer. You just, you just came up with that. That was very good. Prophet, priest, and king. I like that. <laughs> Thank God for Sunday school teachers. <laughs> good answer. Someone else. Why would they give him gifts? Can, it, can it, at best a two-year-old appreciate gold? You know, is this, you know, like Richie Rich? Even as two years old, he could appreciate gold and the value per ounce. Anybody else? That was an excellent answer. You might have just summed it up for everybody. They don't want to follow that. It's a tough act to follow. But there's a lot of truth in that. Anyone else? Because he really can't, can he? As a baby? Appreciate gold and frankincense and myrrh? I like that. Somebody would appreciate it. Marvelous. I like that. Say that again. The last sentence. It was in the giving. What do we say when we give gifts? It's the thought that counts. There's a lot of thought to this. There's a lot of thought to this gift. They packed it with them, took it with them on this long journey. This very purposeful journey. There was a lot of thought and preparation for this. So they didn't get it at the Dollar Tree, for example. Okay. I love a Dollar Tree, by the way, but they didn't get them at the Dollar Tree. They were precious gifts. They were precious to them, costly and fitting for the one receiving them. Even though he is a baby, a toddler, at this time. No older than two years. Any other thoughts with this? Any other those were great great answers. Three great answers. Okay, that's a good thought. That's a good consideration as well. They're going to Egypt, so yes. Excellent. Excellent. Here's the third question, and I love this. What did the different gifts symbolize? Now, Scott, you alluded to it earlier, but there's a little more to it. Okay. 
I like that. If everyone, so everyone heard, heard that. Incense was for a priest. As in priests offered incense at the temple, at the tabernacle. That was part of their priestly duties. Excellent. Any other symbolism involved here with this? Um, well, that, that's certainly an interesting thought. I'm going to say this. Incense is an aroma. You know how we use different words for smells? A smell is neutral, an odor is bad, an aroma is nice. When something's cooking out on the grill, it's an aroma. It's very nice. When they use air freshener, it's nice. There's no stinkweed air freshener, for example. It's, it's a nice, pleasant smell and, and an aroma. It rises. It rises. It goes up. As in going up to the one who is above all. Stuart. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Great minds think alike. So, good point. We're going we're gonna to see that. Let's look and see some examples here. Let's look at King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. And that's 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And we're going to go in the middle of that in 1 Kings in chapter 10. And here, King Solomon is the most famous of Israel's kings. He is the wisest and the most powerful of the kings. And it says, starting in 1 Kings 10, in verse 23, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world saw audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices, and horses, and mules. Here we see why, again, the wise men would present gifts to Jesus. Because here we see a king, an Israelite king, who is receiving gifts. And the first time I read this, I thought, well, isn't this odd? You know, it's a good idea to ask why when you're reading the Bible, to have the mindset to constantly ask why. Solomon's the richest. Why are people giving him money? Why are people giving him gifts if he's the richest? Shouldn't he be giving them to them? Shouldn't he be giving gifts to them? But it says here, the, in verse 24, the whole world sought audience with Solomon. They sought audience with Solomon, and they gave him gifts befitting 
a king. Keep that in mind and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The last book of the Pentateuch. In chapter 16, And in chapter 16, the three Jewish festivals, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, is talked about. And in chapter 16 and verse 16, we read a very interesting point. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Three Jewish holy festivals. Here's the principle. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. I'll say that again. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. No one appears before God empty-handed. Does that remind you of someone who has appeared before God, the Lord, empty-handed, and what the reaction was? As in the parable of the talents, and what was said to him? So here I want to give you a principle. Turn with me to Proverbs. We're in the Old Testament. Swing over to Psalms, Proverbs. We're going to look at chapter 18. And in Proverbs 18 and verse 16, it's one verse, but it's an important principle. It says, a gift opens the way for the giver and ushers him in into the presence of the great. A gift opens the way for the giver and ushers him in into the presence of the great. That is why those that wanted to see King Solomon gave him gifts why the Lord requires people to give him gifts, and why the wise men presented gifts when they met Mary and, jo and, and Jesus. There's a very important principle there. And if you will, please turn with me to Luke. We're going to look at that. In the parable, there's the talents, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the minors. And if you look at the parable of the minus, in Luke, and pardon me as I turn there, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, 19, in the parable of the minus, chapter 19, and I'll read from verse 11. It says, While they were listening to this, he, that is Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. And I have a note here that says a mina was about um, three months' wages. So it's a good sum of money. 
Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Let's go down to verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Those are really bold words to say to the king. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? He's saying, you could have even just given me interest. Give me something. As we read in Deuteronomy, no one comes before the Lord empty-handed. A gift ushers us in into the past, into those who are great. All right, now we're talking about the symbolism of gifts, and let's look at, well, we looked at Luke 19 with the gold here that is presented, because minas are of gold. Let's look at John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And here, Joseph of Arimathea is seeking the body of Jesus after he has been crucified. And in John chapter 19, in verse 38, we read, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. That's in John chapter 3. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So we see here that the gifts were symbolic of a king, a priest, as was mentioned, for incense, and myrrh for a burial, for embalming. So there is a great deal of symbolism in this giving of gifts, even as Jesus is a baby. There is all this. The matter was prophesied from the beginning. And I just want to say this as an aside for our Baptist friends and our friends in the religious world. When we say we want to give gifts to God, the religious world takes that like we're paying the price of admission to heaven, like we're earning our way. These are my wages. I've earned heaven. I've gone to church. I've been very regular. I read my Bible, pray all the time. I'm a good guy. We never earn our way. We never earn it. On Judgment Day, it's not an earning. It's more like an exchange of gifts. We're showing God by our gifts to him how we really feel about him, how we think. And our gifts are symbolic as well.
That's what that's about. It's what we think of God. So, that is the story of Jesus' birth and a few aspects of it I wanted to cover. And good Lord willing, I'll be able to do Christ and his church for the next dozen or so times that I have opportunity to come up here. I want to say to anyone who is not a Christian, if you would please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 38, and Acts chapter 2 is the most detailed description of the gospel invitation, the good news invitation, so I love to refer to it constantly. And Peter is speaking to the Jews assembled for Pentecost, but it really applies to Gentiles, to everyone, as long as there is a today. He says, therefore, in verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, that is to change your mind, and be baptized, that is to be immersed in water. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's the Gentiles like me. The pro and for all whom the Lord our God will call. And if you are not a Christian, the Lord is calling you. And I hope you will not leave this building without becoming a Christian. Well, won't you please come forward now while we stand and sing the invitation song.